What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have John Evans, who's Chief Customer Officer at ad testing company System One, and he also runs a podcast called Uncensored CMO. John, today we're going to dig into that uncensoredness of the CMO, and we're going to talk about two topics. One big topic is you're going to share some of the secrets that you've learned about CMOs while also being one. And two, we're also going to get into the relationship between agency strategists and senior marketers. So they're the two big topics we're going to get into. First of all, thank you for being here today. Mark, it's brilliant to be here, mate. Big fan. Thanks for having me. You are a CMO. You talk to CMOs in public and in private. My job today is to try to get you to reveal secrets that you're a little bit uncomfortable revealing, obviously, with due respect. So let's start with secret number one. Based on your conversations with CMOs, especially in the past year or two, what do you think is the one thing that they talk to you about or to each other about or think about themselves in private that we hardly ever hear about in public? Would you know what? I don't even think CMOs are often even the best marketers because the thing that surprised me when I became a CMO in the first place is you don't actually do much marketing. There's a little bit of grief involved in that because suddenly you go, oh, I'm not the one making the ad. I'm not the one doing the innovation. I'm not the one doing the brand plan. And there's a really weird thing because the skill set that makes you a great CMO is not the skill set that makes you a great marketer. They're actually entirely different. It's almost like you are the person on the exec or the board that represents the marketing function, but you no longer are the marketing expert itself. And actually, one of the secrets is you as the CMO have to bring in the experts on any particular subject. You no longer the best guy at design, the best girl at advertising, you know, the best boy at PR or whatever. And it's quite a weird thing. And you have to make this switch between I'm now allocating resource, coordinating resource, you know, making it happen. I'm no longer doing the do. A small example that amused me somewhat. I've been a CMO in a big company and also in a small. And when I was a CMO in a small company, I was on the board. And I remember going along with my notes. Oh, here's my Twitter numbers. And here's my latest design for a new product we're going to launch. And you know, here's my clever strap line that I just come up with. And I'd sit through the board meeting waiting and they get to the AOB. And then I eventually got to share it sort of thing. And what I realized is when you're at that level, it's about the business of business. It's about strategy. It's finance. It's people. It's legal issues. It's contracts. It's so many other things. And as a CMO, what you have to do is bring marketing into the heart of the business and represent marketing at the boardroom. But to contribute, you've got to be on everything else. You've got to know finance. You've got to know HR. You've got to know case law sometimes, not to be the expert, but the conversation is very different. And when um, I do quite a lot of coaching, actually, outside of my day job with a number of people, mostly heads of marketing, marketing directors that want to become CMOs. And it's probably the one thing that I coach them most on to say, the things you need to learn are not marketing. They're not the things that make you a good CMO. You need to understand company finance. You need to understand strategy. You need to understand people. You need to understand persuasion. They're the skills actually that make you a good CMO. So controversial or not, I'd say the CMO probably is not the best marketer, even in their own team. Oh, that's going to sting if somebody sees that on LinkedIn without any context. (laughs) What's the best or most uncomfortable question you've been asked as a CMO in a board meeting? I think the most uncomfortable position I've been in as a, I should preface. So my claim to fame 
fame, quote unquote. I once got fired twice in the same year, right? So I got fired from two CMO positions in one year. They talk about the CMO having a short tenure, and I well and truly am part of the data set to tell you why. So listeners can either choose to learn from me or follow me off the cliff, whichever takes your fancy. I think the most difficult time of being a CMO, I oversaw one of the leading energy drink in the UK called Lucozade. And we went through a huge transition where we had to reformulate because in the UK, they had a sugar tax coming out. It was a very, very difficult period in time. And I think what you learn is as a CMO, the buck stops with you and success or failure at the end of the day, it's you. Probably the toughest situation I've been in was when we did the reformulation. It was an enormous failure. We're talking 20% drop in sales overnight, huge backlash on Twitter, writing off everyone getting a bonus that year. And I remember the, my boss at the time said publicly, actually, this is a marketing problem. So even though it was a company initiative, right? You know, the factory made the formulation, R&D developed it, sales were selling it. We did the original design and launch. What I realized, this is a truth about being a CMO that people need to understand, is that when it goes well, everyone's involved. When it goes wrong, it's your fault. And this is partly why CMOs don't last very long, because you're often the figurehead, you're often the one in charge of strategy, the one kind of carrying the can, as it were. It was tough, right? Because the entire company was in a terrible situation. Our market numbers were down. Sales were down. Our customers were screaming. You know, Tesco, our biggest customer, was saying every promotion we were doing was 20% less revenue to them than, than they were used to, all down to this reformulation. It wasn't a team failure. It was one person's failure. Or oh, that's how it was positioned. So I think probably the toughest question I've got, you know, was what went wrong with that reformulation. And at the end of the day, you know, we probably spent, I would say, six months, a huge amount of effort uncovering the various steps in the process and why the formulation wasn't right and why we didn't get the research right at the time and why we went ahead and all that kind of thing and the timing of it. And I mean, there were tons of learnings, but the really hard thing was realizing how blame gets apportioned. And that hurts, right? Being honest with you, that hurts when you think it's a team decision and everyone around the table's going, yeah, we're going to do this, hold hands. The moment it goes wrong, you suddenly feel this isolation. Everyone go, well, we did our bit, we did our bit, we did our bit. That's when you know who your friends are. This is corporate life sometimes. And I think for anyone in a CMO position, you need to realize that the buck stops with you. That's partly why you get paid the dollars, right? Because at the end of the day, you are carrying responsibility. So I didn't manage that particularly well. That's when I got wrong. But anyone out there aspiring to be CMO, learn to navigate the politics and, you know, and learn to cover your back in those sorts of situations. I mean, there's research that suggests that people who thrive and survive in the corporate world are essentially political beasts. It's not a meritocracy. It's literally about being a politician first and foremost, right? Politics is an incredible skill for a CMO. Maybe come on to it in a bit, because I think the P's of marketing, there are a different set of P's when you come to a CMO. But politics is something I've never really got right in my career. I don't know whether it's my personality, but I've always called it for what I see. Whether it's in my favor or not, I've always been honest and, and called it like it is. And the thing that distresses me, I have to say, is how... Good political players in corporate organizations can make black look white. They can oversee a tragic delivery of a project and hail it as success. And I decided for me, that's not the kind of person I am. It's not the kind of business I want to be in. And then weirdly, actually, after I got fired in this particular case, 
an ironic backhanded compliment, the CEO, you know, I had coffee with him on the day after I got fired and left the business. He said a very nice thing. He said, you're the best marketer I've ever worked with, but you just failed on the politics. I sat there and thought, do you know, honestly, that's a compliment to me and it's not one to you. But it was the seriousness with which he said that actually the politics is probably the key skill in that position. That's why there are people like me out there doing some different stuff, you know? That's probably why you're doing a podcast as well. That's why I'm doing a podcast, good unsent to CMO. You need a place to have real conversation because so much of that senior life is, is not real. And if you're not wired for it, you're going to pay a price for it. In a metaphor, describe the state of the marketing profession right now. Okay, I'm an optimist. I'm going to go Phoenix. I'm incredibly optimistic about everything. So my team will always tell me off. You would say that, John, you're incredibly optimistic. But let me tell you why. I came across some research by MNC Saatchi Clear a couple of years ago when COVID hit. And it was really quite fascinating because what the research showed is that in a crisis, actually marketers have to step up and they're expected to step up. I think the thing with marketing, and anyone who works in marketing will know it's a bit of a discretionary decision for most businesses to make, whether you spend money on marketing, whether you do things or not. And therefore, it can be seen as the coloring in department, right? It can be seen as that optional, nice to have, not a core fundamental part of business. And one of my passion points is putting marketing at the heart of the business and at the heart of strategy and delivering long-term success. That's what I would be about in a nutshell. And actually what the current global challenges give us and what COVID gave us before actually is an opportunity for marketers to be at the center where decisions are made to represent the customer and to put forward the case for marketing in a recession and for why we should invest in good strategy and good tactics. And so I think if marketing's reputation may have been damaged over many years and as we've done more and more tactical things and the role of the CMO has been diminished and we've changed it to chief digital officer, chief growth officer, chief nonsense officer, whatever it happens to be, I think we're seeing a renaissance. There's more data out there. There's more training out there. There's more evidence out there. And we're starting to see brands step up and it's CMOs leading that charge. Again, I may be optimistic, but that's the case I'd like to put out there for why it's a phoenix moment for CMOs. That's all right. Uh, an optimistic Englishman, so refreshing. Oh my gosh. Break with taboo. <laughs> Speaking of evidence, based on at least the past decade of pretty well promoted marketing sciences and evidence, is there a piece of evidence that you find really, really useful when it comes to building a brand or marketing successful in good times or not good times that is also the hardest for non-marketers to believe? This is such an interesting question. I, I tell you why. Let's just take the long and the short of it, right? So we would be incredibly familiar with that seminal work, Burnett and Fields' work on how you apportion budgets between long-term brand building and short-term activation. I've worked in marketing 25 years. I probably only came across it for the first time five years ago. And I remember the moment I was at uh, Gray, our agency in London I was working with, and I remember being sat in a meeting with some strategists and they did an eye roll going, well, of course, as we all know, long and the short of it. And I'm like, the long and the what of it? And it was just this weirdest moment where I realized that sometimes marketing theory is overexposed amongst a small group of people for whom it is just the most obvious thing ever. Now, at the time, actually, I was struggling to convince the business to invest beyond the short, you know, because most businesses are in a short term cycle, right? If you're a public limited company, you're chasing a quarter result. Even if you're a private company, you might be chasing a year-end bonus. The idea that you might apportion budget to anything beyond the current year 
I can't tell you, for most people, that is a revelation. And the logic that actually you want to maximize long-term returns by getting the balance of your investment right between the two, it is one of those things that for a strategist in an agency is just like, duh. They kind of look at you like, hello. Even as a senior marketer that spends most of my time out there in factories with customers, the evidence for marketing is still kept within a small clique. Even though we kind of get bored of it, and even though Ritson might have got, I don't know, 30,000 people through an MBA, that's still a tiny, tiny percentage of people that actually run businesses in the world right now. So we are nowhere near saturation point when it comes to good strategy and good marketing science, even though we ourselves might feel because we're overexposed to the job done. And that's partly why I did the podcast, right? Because I don't think we're anywhere near the end of the runway when it comes to getting good data out to the people that need it. Okay, give another example. If my old team are listening, they don't kind of get too upset. But the amount of marketing teams I've run, and day one, I tend to drop a pile of books on everyone's desk. It's usually my present as I arrive. It's like, right, if you're going to read three books, please, everybody read these three books, right? And then we'll get off to a great start. What constantly surprises me is how few of those people hand it back and go, I've already got it. Even you take the great How Brands Grow, Professor Byron Sharp up. I mean, I would personally pick his book as, you know, certainly one of the key you know, marketing textbooks. Most of my team when I was over at Suntory, when I was working there, most of them hadn't read it. And in fact, most of them only read it when we were in a crisis. And I said to them, right, this is the book you need to help navigate us through what we're doing. You know, from a strategist point of view, you guys are so gifted and also have access to tremendous insight and data and wisdom that the marketing world more broadly needs to know. So, you know, keep getting the message out there. Well, that rings true as well. I see some of this through London and also through the big five personality traits where one of them is openness. So many people in agencies tend to be very high in openness, novelty seeking, variety seeking, and openness is important for anyone doing creative work. To survive being a marketer, the politics, the bureaucracy, maybe being in a business park, literally or metaphorically miles away from all the cool things that you want to do if you're in advertising, et cetera. It's a certain personality type. They, they tend to be a little bit more closed, a little less variety seeking, right? That's, that's definitely in the, the personality types there, but also London's different. I know the times that I've gone over there, which is lovely. I love catching up with my group Think people and APG people and Google Firestarters people, everybody. The last time I went there, I was at the point just listening to 20 strategists all talking about the same academics where I wanted to throw attention. Why don't you just get a room with him? Why don't you marry him? You talk about him all the time. It's the same five people that everybody talks about in every single interaction. It's super interesting. It is. I know. But you go beyond the M25 to the business park in Birmingham, let's say. You're the marketing director for a soft drink company like I was, and you sit in the boardroom. I'm telling you, nobody around that boardroom has had that conversation with about those people. And that's where we've got to get out of ourselves. We've got to be where the decisions are being made, bring those kind of messages out there. So you're quite right. Is he, you see this on marketing Twitter, you know, the way the same conversations happen between the same handful of people. It's like you're talking to the wrong people, you know? Shout outs to Birmingham, being there for business. I've enjoyed the Indian curry there. And uh, I like watching a bit of Aston Villa. I'm just saying, I'm pandering to the three people from Birmingham listening to this. All right. Marketing budgets often 5 to 10% of projected gross revenue. Who made that up? Why? And why does it continue? It seems like it's just a made up rule of thumb that people adhere to. 
Oh, completely. There'll be a marketing director one day that went, how on earth do I get my budget signed off? And they'd have basically made up a quote to say, well, you know, successful brands spend between eight and 10% of their marketing. So it's probably one of those defense mechanisms. I mean, you know, we've all been through those budget cycles where you have to argue the case. And my career was forged at Britvic Soft Drinks. I think 5.8% was the number we had at the time. Again, every single year it was cut because they were trying to give money back to shareholders. In fact, what we found was it was a classic long and the short of it, although I wasn't aware of the data at the time. It was putting more money into tactics to drive annual sales and deliver annual targets, less money on brand building. And so there was a big fight, right? It came to budgeting time and you, you want to make your ads and you can't afford to do it. You want to work with the best agencies you can't afford to. It seems like a clever statistic to justify what you want to do. Now, here's the thing with marketers is they're mostly seen as kind of creative discretionary, doing the fun stuff, right? So as soon as a marketer comes up with some data, right, that's a big tick, or they make a business case, then they're taken much more seriously. This is another thing about a CMO, right? The CMO's conversations rarely happens with other marketers. You are talking to the CFO about your budget for next year, the return on investment, et cetera. You're talking to you know, the person who runs legal about whether or not you can sign off the campaign. You're talking to the chief customer officer about how we get Tesco or your biggest customer to get behind what you're doing. You've got to talk the language of business. You've got to use the rational case for emotion, I suppose, if you, if you want to put it that way. Get your marketing through. And there's an art to that, which is why I think you know there's a persuasion art of the CMO. You meet a lot of CMOs. I think if you talk to them, they would like to talk about how cool their last ad was. And I'm sure most of them would enjoy it. If they were honest with you, that's actually not what's important to them. What's important to them is have they got the right people? Have they got the budget signed off? Is the strategy understood? Are their targets being met? And so it's a very different conversation. As I said to you before, you kind of go from going home feeling excited that you've just finished an ad or you've just launched a new packaging design or whatever you get you, you know success now becomes have other people done that well and is the business rallying behind the strategy and so on so what i'm hearing is that the well 8 to 10 or 5 to 10% of gross revenue as marketing budget was actually born to a virgin mother on a mountain a mother who made love to a monster god and has just walked down the hill into town and there we go we have it only marketers could invent a story like Zeus comes down with tablets of stone, you know. As a slight aside, this is where marketing academia is so important because if you can drop in the evidence base, the science, the data, I cannot tell you how useful that is. So if I started again in marketing, I would lap up all the marketing books and research out there because if you have in conversation, it's so disarming when you're talking to a CFO and you drop in the evidence base for why marketing is actually an investment. It's not a discretionary spend. It completely changes it. It basically is a source of investment and growth as opposed to a discretionary cost that can be cut moment's notice. Your relationship with the business completely changes. So a big plug for getting your head in the books there. Why are so many marketing academics so angry on the internet? This is a good one, actually. I saw this. Sorry, I, we need to not name names. This is a really interesting one. Right? There, there was a uh, sorry on LinkedIn. I'll try and not name names. There was a CMO who had become a CEO on a startup business in the UK, right? And she was talking about how the challenge of the marketer is to balance the theory and the practice, right? And a well-known academic had sort of challenged why on earth you'd need to do that because the science is the science, okay? Knowing the person, knowing the situation, having been in her situation before, 
when you're fighting for the very existence of your business, you're not going to be investing in long-term brand building. There's just a practical reality, right? When you're about to run out of money, people are about to call the loans in, you're about to lose your brand and you're about to get fired. You may make some decisions that are not theoretical. You're going to make some decisions that are immensely practical because you want to fight another day. I think that's the thing is that if you're an academic, you're looking at the data, everything seems very binary and very set. When you're actually in the heat of battle, it can help you sometimes. It can be brilliant, but sometimes you have to make a pragmatic decision that theoretically may not appear to be the right one, but it's about survival. It's about getting through this particular crisis to emerge on the other side. So I massively sympathize with this person because I'm like, I read the article when I've been there and done that. You know, the theory is not the answer to every question. Sometimes you have to sort of survive in order to live another day so you can put the theory back into practice. I've been thinking about creating a character through which I can ask even more loaded questions. I'm actually going to give you a more loaded question. Pretend I'm in character right now. Shout outs to Diane Morgan and Kunk on Earth. Very inspiring right now. I hope I got those words right. Okay, more loaded question then, because you answered it, but also I want to get you somewhere new. Why are so many marketing academics online and why is so much of marketing Twitter and marketing LinkedIn so full of hatred? I just think this is just like this testosterone desire to be right. Yeah. It's just like, I'm right, you're wrong. There is only one answer. If you've been in business and you know that it's gray, right? You're dealing with shades of gray all the flipping time and there isn't a right answer. And judgment, like, honestly, the amount of judgment you have to do every single day. And the other thing is, of course, CMOs that are fighting are not like spending time on Twitter sharing their thoughts, right? So what you do get is the academics kind of all having a pissing contest to see who's more right. I occasionally get this when we put out some work recently on where in versus where out of system one, and then we start getting it picked apart. Well, you didn't take into account media spend, did you, John? And da 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 sort of thing. And it's like, well, can we not accept that there's some truth in what I said? And I will then tell you when you do put media spend, this is what else you learn. And look, I don't know, I'm not like that. I'm, you know, like you in terms of podcasts, I'm about generosity and sharing insight and sharing learns because I think we're all better off. Ah, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. A final question on, on this sort of confessional part of the interview before we get into the working relationship between agency strategists and senior marketers especially. What are three of the most common fears that you hear about from CMOs? I want to hear things that I couldn't guess. I want to hear things that maybe you've heard after six drinks, singlings, six drinks, you know, that's 4 p.m. on a Wednesday. Three fears. What are people most scared of at that CMO level right now? I think a big one is reputation. This is something that's quite new. I think if you go years ago, your reputation would be your ad campaign, or it would be the last product you launched and how well it did, right? But I think in the last few years, everything has got a load more sensitive. The system when we do some work on diversity and how to get diversity right in advertising, for example. And if you talk to CMOs, like, you know, behind the scenes, that that is a topic they're very, very anxious about getting right because you look at the venom that's out there when things go wrong 
And I think as a public figure, you can be attacked and your reputation can be destroyed in a way that just didn't happen five years ago or 10 years ago. And so I think if you spoke to most CMOs, they are media trained within an inch of their lives not to say the wrong thing. In my short tenure as a CMO, I had some brilliant media training. And in fact, the reason I called the podcast Uncensored CMO was I was so well trained that every question I got asked, I would bounce back with a corporate answer that reversed into whatever it is we wanted to say right. And I hate that. I hate it so much. That's still in you. I've interviewed thousands of people. I know which part of the pool we're swimming in. And I like Uncensored CMO for you as an aspiration, but you know, I can feel the resistance. I can feel the corporateness. I can smell it, John. I can smell it. That fear of reputation is probably emphasized by the fact that so many CMOs are middle-aged white guys who are getting canceled, right? Well, I think that's very fair. That has changed radically. So here's a stat for you, right? So you go back 10 years ago, 70% of CMOs hired were white men. Last year, 70% of CMOs were women. And it's now on average 50-50. That has flipped massively. Joe, to answer your question very precisely, if you talk to most middle-aged male CMOs, genuinely, they don't know if they're going to work again. Genuinely. They all get hired, right? I mean, some of the statistics are pretty astonishing in terms of lack of ability to hire it. In terms of if you're a male CMO, you won't make the shortlist in a lot of hiring, you know, now. Yeah, it's rough. I've had friends or just people that I kind of know through the internet losing jobs in late 40s and 50s, and they literally get told, which is kind of illegal, that they're probably not going to get shortlisted. They're not going to get the job because of how they present. If we're being uncensored here, I've lost three jobs in the last five years because I'm a man. Three times. They're the ones I know about. Well, it is illegal. They're the jobs that you lost that you knew about losing. Can you imagine the millions that I would have like got had, you know, they didn't tell me, yeah? There were jobs that you went for that you didn't get because you were a man and they told you that. Yeah, there are three jobs where I was told I didn't fit the profile that was desired by the company. Here's an interesting thing for you. Again, get properly uncensored about this. One of the reasons for it is, and I understand this, by the way. So, you know, in terms of do I empathize with the situation? Yes. So most boards are trying to diversify quickly. And the pool of talent, if you think about the roles on a board, the pool of talent with the most likelihood of having women and ethnic minorities is the CMO role. The one that changes most frequently is the CMO role. So what's happening is most boards desperate to diversify their boards are using the CMO role as an opportunity to diversify quickly, right? I'm pretty sure if I was working in legal or finance, my experience would be completely different. And when I talk to my friends who work in those sectors, they go, man, equality, we've got so much further to go yet. And I get that, you know, I think marketing has probably accelerated, but, you know, partly because we're a progressive industry, we've kind of accelerated, you know, that progress, you know. So reputation, give me two more fears. Well, reputation be number one. I think number two probably is getting fired. And I say this as someone who has got fired. And genuinely, I think where in most other roles, you know, you're a functional specialist, like you're the supply chain guy, right? You're keeping the factory running or you're the sales guy, you represent the customer. It's very easy to fire a CMO. It is that kind of role that, you know, if things go wrong, you get fired. And CMOs know this. And there are not that many CMOs that have done 10 years that, you know, I mean, I know there are a few, Unilever perhaps, and I know Mark Evans at Direct Line, for example, would be a good example. But there's a hell of a lot of CMOs that have done a couple of years here, a couple of years there. They've almost got their CV permanently updated and their LinkedIn profile, you know, with 500,000 likes on it just to sort of make sure that, that they're there. So that I think is genuinely real. I mean, the other, and now to link to another 
category of diversity, I think when I, again, being a guy in my 40s, it's very, very unusual to have anyone older than kind of me still left in a marketing team. In fact, it's worse in agencies. I mean, I know there's that WPP thing, wasn't there, about the percent average age in WPP. When I ran marketing, a large marketing team, 80% were under the age of 30. In fact, I met one of my teams and I had more experience than the entire team added together because they were like two years, three years, four years, whatever. And I'm sat there with 24 years. It was ridiculous. And, and I generally thought, well, where the hell do the marketers go when you get to 40? I mean, we had maybe two senior women in the team of 60 who were probably sort of late 40s, early 50s. But I think ageism is a, I mean, even in Marketing Week last week, there was a article about mid-career lifestyle changes, almost positioning the kind of get the older people off the conveyor belt as a positive, like, yeah, you can become a mentor, you can do training. These are people giving up six-figure, well-paid jobs because they're an age. I think that's a biggie. Going to go for number three. Number three, fear for a CMO. That's a really good one. The first two were easy. Uh, let me think. That isn't well-known. Again, it's maybe my fear, not projecting onto other people. You cannot be brilliant at everything. So one of the challenges I got very often was, hey, John, you don't understand digital. I mean, that'd be a classic. You're not necessarily the subject matter expert on everything, but you know, I'll suddenly have to be, you know, what we're going to do about this Twitter backlash we've just had, or what we're going to do about the bots that are starting to you know, uh, come up. Or what? I found it quite hard to be all over everything and an expert on everything. And you're not really. So that's when you need to rely on you know, on experts. So I suppose it's linked to the ageism one, actually. There's, there's the slight fear that maybe you're going to be a bit redundant. Again, I may, maybe I would say this, wouldn't I? But I'd have to say that actually I feel I've learned so much. I actually think I've got more to give. You know, I've had the experience. I've seen it. I've gone through bad times, gone through good times. There's so many learnings that I've got that I would put the case that actually more senior marketers are bringing way more value even though they may not you know, necessarily know the latest thing on TikTok or how artificial intelligence is going to transform how we do voiceovers in the future. So the three main fears are personal reputation, potential for getting fired, and then being redundant largely because they don't know enough or their knowledge isn't up to date. The chairman goes, what are we going to do on TikTok? And you're sat there going, I didn't even know what TikTok is or how TikTok works. My kids have got it. You know, you're going to become out of fashion. All right, let's now talk about the working relationship between strategists and senior marketers. And I, I want to be a little bit more specific and think about strategists who, who might be in their 20s, might be a few years in, and senior marketers who might be 20 years older. Could you describe to me the dynamics that you believe lead to the best slash most effective working relationships between senior marketers and upcoming strategists? I've had some brilliant experience with this. Look, number one tip, I think by far from a client point of view is involve strategies early in the actual business strategy, not in the common strategy. What tends to happen is, you know, you'll write your annual plan, you'll do your strategy, you'll present it as part of the plan, you'll have a particular communication objective. And at that point, you go and brief the agency and then the strategies get, get their teeth into it and come back with a response. That's way too late. So the best examples I've done is, I mean, if I go back to when we had this challenge on LucasAid, is I actually got my creative agency and the strategists who absolutely, I have to say, I cannot recommend them more. They were brilliant. 
they were actually sat around the table as we discussed the business strategy, right? Not just the advertising bit. How are we going to position the brand? Where are we going to go? What's our response to this crisis going to be? And what you get there is, you know, as a CMO, you're a generalist, right? You have to cover so many different things. But what you get with a strategy is someone who's going to think deeply about your business problem, who's going to think carefully about it and come back with a point of view you won't have had before. I also found is articulate it in a way that is usually quite simple and inspiring that everyone can get their head around. A couple of examples I'll use on, on LucasAid only because it's a, a big crisis I've been through and a brand I've managed. But like on, uh, on LucasAid Sport, for example, the strategist came back with this really simple idea that as human beings, we're all made to move, right? And LucasAid Sport is there to help. And the idea they came up with was made to move. And suddenly it's like that unifies everything, right? Suddenly like our packaging should help you move. Our sponsorship should help you move. Our in-store promotion should help you move. Our app should help you move. Our drinks should be scientifically proven to help you move. We should track, you know, how many people we've got to move. And what it meant was every decision we there made after that point, just link back to that one question. Are we here to make people move? Right. That's our mission. And it was brilliant. And then the other one on Lucas and Energy, because uh, just to give the same team their credit because they were brilliant. It was energy beats everything. And, and the idea they came up with is that actually talent is limited, but energy is the thing that at the end of the day, if you go back to any great story in life, David and Goliath was our inspiration. It's the energy to do something and change something and be the difference and get through and the practice and the endurance. And the, you know that's the thing in most cases that delivers a success. Talent on its own, isn't enough. It's energy that beats everything. And again, that was such a simple idea. But what it did is I cannot tell you how much a good idea, well articulated, unifies an entire organization. It unifies customers. It makes decisions simple. It gives clarity to creative briefs, but it gives clarity to things you wouldn't even imagine like customer service responses or the factory redesign, or it goes so much further. And that's why I started by saying, if as a strategist, you can get yourself in the room Round the table when the strategy is being, the, the business strategy or the brand strategy is being created, that's the moment of influence. And that's when um, it'll make your life so much better. You're communicating an understanding of brand, creative brief writing, and comms planning that's very unusual. And what's unusual about what you've expressed is that you could see three words made to move or energy beats everything, which to some people could sound like copy or strap lines, taglines, et cetera, but you see them as strategic thoughts. And not only do you see them as strategic thoughts that could probably sit on a brief, but they could shape how the entire business behaves outside of obvious communication. Surely that kind of understanding is 5% of CMOs. It can't be more than 10%. I'm making the number up, but that feels like a very rare understanding of the power of what people like me and my crew do. It's a good point, actually, because it depends how creative you are as a CMO. So, for example, when Energy Beats Everything is presented to me, my head just goes, hell yeah, we could do blah. And, you know, I'm just literally, my mind is spinning at 3,000 miles an hour, articulating that, the implication of that all over the place, right? But I suppose in that case, so I suppose partly personality, partly experience, but also I had a very close relationship with the agency at the time and a high level of trust. And I mean, I remember the Energy Beats Everything thing, Caroline, who, who ran the team, was like, I really don't want to present this to you yet because we've got a lot of other ideas in development, but you know what, sod it. I'm going to put it down on a bit of paper and let's just talk about it. And I'm like, I'm like thank you, because I know you're breaking the process, all that sort of thing. But she knew that I could run with it and she knew I'd treat it in the right way. 
Okay. But the other thing I'd say for a CMO in their defense is, and the benefit with that conversation is I was in a position to go, that's now going to become our company theme, right? Next year. That's going to be on the wall in the factory. That's going to be in every customer presentation. That's going to be in our objectives from the bottom up. And that's the power of the CMO because you can take an idea, you know, as a strategist, you might go, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if this was, did all this kind of stuff? The CMO is the, probably the person that can actually make all that stuff happen. And if you get them excited about it, there's no end to where the idea can go. My biggest frustration, and this is a classic, I know classic client thing is when, you know, you ask a creative agency for an answer and the, and, the, and the solution comes back as a bit of comms, right? And it drives you insane. And you're just like, oh, I wish you could think more broadly because you're creative people. But of course, they're thinking about, you know, is, is this going to end up in a brief that's going to make us money? That doesn't happen when you're in the brainstorm talking about the business problem, you know, further upstream. People can be more agnostic about the solution. Let's say you've just made tens of strategists around the world feel more optimistic about their lives and their existence in this, broadly speaking, this industry. At the same time as a counterpoint, increasingly we're seeing chief revenue officers, chief growth officers with people who might have been a CMO or head of brand reporting into them. So basically, like the, the people that you're describing, people like you over time seem seem to be being put in these more junior roles and over someone like you, someone who's been a salesperson, who's run massive sales teams, who's been frontline with programmatic media buyers, they seem to be the people, according to, I don't know, things I've seen on the internet, as in research, they seem to be on the ascendancy. And those people struggle with abstract thinking. Sorry to be like this. I think this is true. They struggle with abstract thinking. They don't understand brand. They're often actually at an individual level, suspicious and possibly even resentful of people who do creative work. They belittle it. So if that's the trend, what cause for optimism is there? Maybe you're a dying breed. That is a trend. And look, I think the statistic for CMOs that make it to the top job is like 8%. So let's imagine it's probably something like one in 10 are the CMO in charge, and maybe nine times out of 10, you've got a commercial person in charge. Part of my response is go get some commercial experience pretty quickly because actually that's really healthy because it gets you in the chance that you might be in the one in 10, not the nine in 10. Anyway, slight aside. The answer to your question, and I've seen this play out many times, is you need to give them the rational case for emotion. So what they respond to data. So I've been in front of general managers, CEOs, sales directors who are very, very not creative. And they just literally just like, what have I just seen? I've just seen a gorilla playing drums. I've just seen David beat Goliath over the head with a, you know, how on earth is this going to help us sell anything? And that's where you do have to bring the science in. You have to do pre-testing like we do at System 1. You have to bring the data to show that, okay, you may feel that. Our audience doesn't. And our audience, the ones that go into your store, they go in and buy and they're going to go and, you know, they're going to help us sell more. And that's the data. So for someone like me, you don't need the data because I'll just go get it right. Got it. Let's go. In fact, if I take the same example with Energy Beats Everything, what we then did is we then tested it quantitatively quickly. With, in fact, with System 1, actually, small plug. But we did test it with System 1. And actually, what we did is went into the boardroom with the CFO, the CCO, you know, the CEO, all the Cs, right? They're all there. And actually, we presented the data. We, we showed them the ads, right? Oh, good. You know, that, that was done in 60 seconds. But the rest of it was, now let's talk to you about how the science of marketing works and how it builds market share, how creativity actually drives feeling and how feelings predict our, our behavior. And they're fascinated. And this is where I come back to this first point about strategy getting out of strategy land, because those people have not been exposed to the kind of stuff that you and I know. But I can tell you when they are, 
they're blown away. But it's long and the short of it, right? Nobody's heard the long and the short of it in the boardroom. I promise you, apart from maybe Unilever and P&G, although actually Peter Field argues with me on this because he did, I did say this and he said most of his jobs now are not with marketers. So thank you, Peter, keep going. But most of the boardrooms I've seen, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. So you've got to bring the evidence base. And in fact, this is a top tip for any marketer. If you're like me and you're creative and you love abstract thinking and you love creativity, learn to be data-driven because if you can marry the creativity with the data. It's the data that's going to help you sell in to the grown-ups, as I call them, and convince the hairy-ass sales director who just wants to know how many cases of beer we're going to sell as a result of this silly-looking campaign. It's the data's going to tell you. Well, is there anything that you'd like to say as like a final word to the strategists who are hearing what you're saying, they're picking up what you're putting down, but possibly wondering what on earth they're still doing in this industry, even maybe after only five years, just beating their heads against the wall, not feeling valued, not feeling like a creative team is actually paying any attention to their creative briefs, head down, making social media calendars when that's not what they signed up for. Like someone who is a bit more intuitive, who can work with data, but is intuitive and creative and working in an agency capacity is only a few years in. Can you give them some older man context? And optimism. I would be optimistic. And I, the reason I'd be optimistic is most of your clients are short of the very skill set you've got. The issue is you're downstream at the moment of the process, and therefore your involvement is at the wrong end. So if you could make a pitch to do a secondment into your customer's business or your the brand you're working on to maybe shadow them through the brand planning process or offer to give a day a week, or it doesn't really matter what really, but if, if you can get yourself outside of your planning strategy bubble into your customer, and I tell you the question to ask is one question that you should ask, what is your biggest business problem? And it is an insanely simple question, but it's a question nobody ever asked me. And it changes everything. I'll tell you something else, right? The brief you get is almost certainly the wrong brief by the time it gets to you. The brief won't be the wrong brief if you've asked what the biggest business problem is and you've had the conversations at the beginning upstream. Then what you'll do is go, do you know what the brief actually is? The brief is actually this. And therefore, the output you're going to get is going to be much better as a result. I don't know the strategy industry as well as you do, Mark, but in my experience of it looking outside is you're almost in this little box within the agency that sort of get lets out. Go and do the thinking. We'll roll you out for the old customer presentation. We'll roll you back in to go and carry on thinking again. But you need to find a way to go jump the fence, as it were, even beyond the count team and go, let's second the strategy team into our biggest brand. You sit and listen to their business problem. And then you come back and tell us what to do. That would be it. The books that you're describing, I felt that in the US in as a head of strategy in massive places that I was in this tiny little box. I didn't feel that in Australia. The first role that I had as an account planner was at Leo Burnett in Sydney with Todd Sampson. It's pretty well known there. And I, I bought into what he taught us, was, which was that we're there to solve business problems. And we would talk to clients about business problems, but we had clients that were mostly okay discussing their business problems with us. In the US, I've often asked, well, what's the problem that we're trying to solve or what's the business problem? And it's caused a glitch in the system to the point where often the body language back to me, even as a head of strategy, felt like people were saying, shut up and make us the ad, All right? So again, I just feel that you're talking about stuff that's actually much more rare than maybe you even realize, or maybe it's very common in London. I don't think it is. I tell you what, it, it took a crisis for this to happen for me, right? So maybe... I was forced into it and I may not have done it normally, right? So because I was in a crisis, I thought I need help, right? I want the best strategists in this case, Lillian from Grey London. I mean, super smart cookie. She's now in Australia. 
Gavin, who was my best PR, Caroline, who was my best creative. I literally handpicked a team and said, come over, please spend one day a week in my office and we're going to solve this together. And I've never seen better work as a result of it because we all were running in the same direction and we were agnostic of the answer. Gavin wasn't going, oh, the answer's PR. Gavin was going, here's how you win an election. Here's my advice about how political parties win elections. Let's run it like a campaign office. Caroline was going, well, I'm not going to use my creativity on your whole business not to build, not to design your poster. Lillian was just thinking through very clearly problem through to solution and, and came up with the made to move with the energy beats everything. It was absolutely brilliant. So maybe it took a crisis for me to do that, but anyone could learn from my crisis. Don't wait for a crisis. Operate in that way anyway. We pay agencies a lot of money. Why would I waste your talents? By just waiting till you know you're in the box doing the answer to the brief on paper, why wouldn't I want the benefit? And the other thing to say actually as well is most customers are very constrained on overheads and have to outsource a lot to agencies. And that's another thing about a CMO is you rely a lot on agencies around you to do a lot of the heavy lifting. This is a freebie. If you as an agency can afford it, this is a freebie and this will pay and pay. Because can you imagine you solve a big problem for a customer like this? You're going to be there for life, right? Well, unless a CMO gets fired like me. But anyway, that's what you've got to watch out for. But honestly, you're going to be ingrained in the fabric of the business as opposed to being an optional pitched agency that might have a couple of years and then you're in the mix with everyone else again. It's funny, just by way of ending, part of this feels very nostalgic, idealistic and romantic. I feel like this is what we're supposed to be doing. So if you're out there in a senior marketing role or you eventually end up in one, take some of these concepts into account. They're going to feel contrarian based on the time where so much marketing seems to be mechanistic about the tools and the systems and the analytics and the dashboards and all that sort of stuff. But to do it well, you've got to work out how to hold a team together and possibly in an unusual way such as in the way that John has just described. John, if people want to find you on the internet, where's the best place to look other than your almost uncensored CMO podcast? Well, they're on Twitter at uncensored CMO. There you go. That's, that's really easy. Uh, LinkedIn, just my name, John Evans. And if you at uh, System One, I'm john.evans at systemonegroup.com. That's where we go and do some ad testing. Close the loop on that one. The actual business case for System One is not to tell you how to make a better ad, but we can do that is actually to give you the data to justify why to do it in the first place, to win the battle with the kind of people that aren't like you, that haven't got a creative brain and need to see the evidence for why your idea is so good. That's a surprising thing. People assume we're there to mark their homework. We're not. We're there to sell their homework to the people that can pay for it and make it happen. Follow Mark on LinkedIn, by the way. Sorry, mutual appreciation here because I love your content. You're very generous with your content, by the way. It's very good. Thank you for sharing this. And, and System One does publish some really useful stuff online. That's why I'm okay with you giving them a shout out. I will see you on the internet, John. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, subscribe to our newsletter, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training, or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.